Good morning. In today's headlines, former President Trump is skipping this week's first Republican primary debate. Learn what this means for the upcoming debate and how it may affect Trump's poll numbers. Republican candidates campaigning in Atlanta and South Carolina. This while President Biden's campaign dumps tens of millions in ads in battleground states. We get some insight on this from an analyst. The National Weather Service warns of life-threatening and catastrophic flooding in Southern California. We have the latest on Tropical Storm Hillary and its effects. FEMA's administrator is sounding her own emergency warning over disaster relief funds and learn why major insurance companies are backing out of the market in California. Is your teen or preteen ready for a smartphone? It's a tough decision for parents. We bring you vital information on the pros and cons of giving them one. And the story of a man who doesn't let the condition he was born with hold him back. He says he is now sharing the message of hope and living life to the fullest. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning, everyone. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Monday, August 21st. And topping the news today is former President Trump. And we have a little follow-up for you. If you remember, we broadcast allegations by former New York Lieutenant Governor Betsy McCoy that Special Counsel Jack Smith is using legal trickery and lies to set up an unfair trial for Trump. That's right, and we reached out to the special counsel's office and they declined to comment. But going into the news now, the first Republican primary debate is this week, Wednesday. Former President Trump says he won't be attending. The 2024 presidential candidate has floated the idea of skipping the GOP de debates due to his lead in the polls. The frontrunner for the Republican nomination confirmed the decision on social media yesterday. Nine candidates qualified for the first debate. A CBS poll from Sunday shows Trump as a preferred candidate for 62 percent of Republican voters. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis came in at 16 percent. All other candidates had less than 10 percent support. Trump called his latest poll numbers legendary. He says the public knows who he is and touted the policies of his presidency. He says it didn't make sense to give his GOP rivals a chance to attack him because of his sizable lead. Trump suggested he might be skipping other Republican debates as well. The next GOP debate is set for next month in California. Now, what kind of impact could this decision have? We bring in Janice Heisel for more on this. She's a reporter with the Epic Times and has been following along pretty closely. Good morning, Janice. It's good to have you. Let's talk about this. Trump announcing that he will not attend the GOP debate. How do you think will it affect him or even the other candidates? Well, I did an article prior to all of this last week with this speculation that he would not attend. And in that article, I did um, have the opportunity to quote a number of experts who are saying things such as, you know, former President Trump actually has an advantage from the standpoint that he has been a TV star even prior to his run for the presidency. and has this flamboyant personality that he's just able to command media attention a lot more easily than a lot of other candidates. So in that way, it may not hurt him. However, it still is possible. We don't know how voters will react. We don't know what is going to happen on that stage when he is not there. He will be there in spirit, so to speak, though, because he is sure to come up as a topic. Mm. 
Now, and that's a good point because debates increasingly become an uh, immediate event, right? So, but there is a criticism, and dis there is criticism on that. And DeSantis, for instance, he mentioned that the public won't look kindly on that. Now, what's your reaction to this? Well, based on what I've seen on social media and just speaking to people out in the public, I've got to tell you that I do have a little bit of a mixed reaction. It seems like people who like Trump understand and respect the decision, and people who don't like Trump don't like the decision. Hmm. Well, good point. Now, some speculation also about him joining in last minute. What do you think are the chances here? I don't think there's a good chance of that at all. And there was a rumor that was reported widely in some other media earlier uh, that he would be appearing with Tucker Carlson, the former Fox News star. Uh, but it doesn't seem like that that came together. The last I heard from the Trump campaign, they just said they didn't have confirmation on their end. And I haven't heard from them since that was several days ago. Well, let's keep an eye on that. Looking forward to that debate. Thank you so much, Janice Heisel, for your insights. Appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Candidates trying to set themselves apart in the crowded Republican primary field with a little over seven months to go before Super Tuesday. Candidates made a trip to Georgia this weekend to reach voters in the purple state. Entity's Melina Wisecup reports. We're here in the heart of Atlanta, Georgia, where many of the Republican presidential candidates have joined Eric Erickson's The Gathering to share their view for America and make their case as to why they deserve to emerge from this crowded GOP primary. We are going to authorize the use of deadly force against the cartels. We need to clean out all the political appointees so that we can restore confidence and integrity. If I'm president of the United States, uh, we're going to get a new chairman at the Federal Reserve. We need to take our America First agenda to the next level. And I think it will take an outsider from a different generation with an actual positive vision. That's what I'm bringing to the table. And speaking with many of the attendees here, they say they're very grateful to have this opportunity to hear so many of these presidential candidates speak together in one place to really get a various take on where they all stand on many of these issues. But many of them said they aren't ready to make up their minds just yet. I haven't really gotten that far in the analysis. I do have gut reactions to all of them. Okay. And I didn't really dislike any of them as potential presidents. DeSantis would be my first choice because he has a proven record, but I'm not, I'm not sure if he can win the general because I think there may be enough DEI and Disney folks out there. I would like Vivek, but again, he's sort of too young at this point. So. It's still early, so I want to uh, allow the candidates to present their qualifications. But one Georgia Republican congressman says he's not afraid to make his endorsement well known. It's for Governor Ron DeSantis. Here's why. Oh, Ron DeSantis has been a governor in, in a state that's been exploding in population and its economy. Uh, he's taken on some very tough issues during tough times, and his popularity still has increased. And with the GOP's first primary debate coming up, I asked presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy about how he feels since Trump won't attend. Here's what he told me. As to the debate, I have no problem with him skipping the first couple of debates. He's been on that debate stage plenty of times. He's been in the White House for four years. Vivek will be joining his other opponents this week on Wednesday in Milwaukee, Wisconsin for that first Republican presidential debate. Reporting from Atlanta, Georgia, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. 
Heavy rain from Tropical Storm Hillary drenched Southern California over the weekend. It's the first tropical storm to hit the area in 84 years. The storm made landfall yesterday in Mexico's Baja Peninsula as a Category 1 hurricane. It has since weakened and been downgraded, but forecasters are warning it could still bring life-threatening conditions. One person in Mexico died on Saturday when an overflowing stream swept away their vehicle. Four others were rescued. The country's army says close to 2,000 people were evacuated to shelters. Flash flood warning around Los Angeles yesterday had officials sounding the alarm. Residents faced down power lines and flooded streets from the fierce winds and heavy downpours. Some needed rescue. Over 7 million people are under flash flood warnings as of this morning. The storm is forecast to keep moving north through California and over central Nevada today. The National Weather Service cautioned that lives and property are in great danger. It says areas that don't normally experience flash flooding will flood. San Diego and Los Angeles schools canceled Monday classes today. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the storm and its effects. A deluge of rainfall and floods in Las Vegas on Sunday. California Governor Gavin Newsom and Nevada Governor Joe Lombardo both declared a state of emergency on Saturday. Portions of the road in Santa Clarita were washed out. Some residents in Victorville decided to play it safe and evacuate as waters inched closer to their home. Lives can't be replaced, material objects can. And it's better to just replace a house, fix whatever gets damaged, than risking somebody drowning over something that's avoidable. People in the desert town of Rancho Mirage, close to Palm Springs, called the amount of water unprecedented. It's quite amazing. I've never seen anything like this. We've had storms before, but never anything quite this windy and rainy at the same time. Authorities closed the part of Interstate 8 due to rock slides. Eyewitness video captured boulders blocking part of a road in the southern part of the state. Meteorologists anticipate Hillary could rank among the most rain-laden tropical cyclones recorded. Forecasters say mountain and desert areas could get 5 to 10 inches of rain, as much as the deserts usually get in a year. The storm could potentially be the first tropical system on record to strike Nevada. It could also wreak havoc further north. Rainfall up to 5 inches is possible across parts of Oregon and Idaho through Tuesday morning. A hurricane specialist with the National Hurricane Center said the storm should become a post-tropical cyclone sometime Monday as it loses a well-defined center. It's warning of the danger of flash floods despite the storm weakening. We continue to be very concerned about the potential for life-threatening, flash flooding, potentially catastrophic impacts. The Hurricane Center says a storm system in the Atlantic became Tropical Storm Emily on Sunday and Tropical Storm Franklin formed in the Eastern Caribbean. Tropical storm watches for the southern coasts of Haiti and the Dominican Republic were also issued. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Southern California got another unpleasant surprise yesterday afternoon. A 5.1 magnitude earthquake hit Ojai. That's about 80 miles northwest of downtown LA. At least two smaller aftershocks followed the quake. No major damage or injuries were reported. And up next, we have an election roundup for you. Find out some ideas proposed by GOQ candidates, including disbanding the FBI and a new massive ad push by the Biden campaign. And President Biden is set to visit Maui today following the devastating fires. Biden's visit comes after he faced criticism over his response and lack of investigation into the cause of the fires. That's after the break.
Welcome back. Now for some election updates. Vivek Ramaswamy doing some electioneering in low country and former President Trump asking for an April 2026 trial date in his election case. We're bringing in a political analyst to break this down for us. Lenny McAllister, senior fellow with the Commonwealth Foundation, joins us live. Thank you so much for your time, Lenny. Ramaswamy spoke to a crowd of about 100 people in South Carolina on Saturday. He touched on his plans to eliminate the FBI and the Department of Education. Do you consider this a radical approach? It's not a radical approach for this Republican Party. These are t the type of ideas that have been kicked around for the last 10 years, particularly the Department of Education, probably for the last 20 years. But when you start talking about can a candidate from this Republican Party win in the general election in 2024, it absolutely is radical. You're talking about the FBI. You're talking about investigations when it comes to things such as the rise of hate crimes. When you start talking about things such as the rise of threats on American soil when it comes in the aftermath of a 9-11 of world. We're talking about 20 plus years since 9-11. The FBI, Homeland Security and others have been working together to keep Americans safe. So again, when you're talking about campaigning in South Carolina, in Iowa, in early GOP states going into the early part of 2024, it's an idea that will catch momentum and that's why he's seeing a bump in the polls. When you, but when you start talking about what will happen post-convention and into the general election, it's not a winner. And, of course, Ramaswamy is a young candidate with a lot of big ideas, but do you think the American public is ready for things like that? And have you heard him talk about any possibilities of what he's going to do to replace the FBI? Have not heard that. And, again, that's the beautiful thing about campaign season. You can give an idea and not necessarily give a plan. And that's actually what the consultants tell you to do. They tell you, you can give a big idea. You're only going to be on a debate stage for about 45 seconds to a minute at a time with your answer. Give the big idea. Get voters excited. Try to gin up support, whether it's financial support or support at the, at the uh, voting booth. And then from there, make a move. Now, are Americans ready for big ideas and something fresh and exciting? Yes, and I think that even though Donald Trump is over 70 years old, I think this is the reason why he excited people in 2016. They were sick of seeing career politicians. People forget, going 2015 to 2016, the leading candidates were Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton. People said, we want something different. Going into 2007 and 2008, the leading candidates were Rudy Giuliani and Hillary Clinton. People said we want something fresh and new, which is why you got a Barack Obama going into 2008. I think Americans want to turn the page with career politicians, but you have to come with the right ideas, the right plans, and the right type of leadership, not just placating to one side of the American partisanship. And of course, Obama campaigned on change and he won the White House. And Ramaswamy, he's obviously neck and neck now with DeSantis. So what do you think caused this change? Ramaswamy is playing into the culture wars. DeSantis has been advised repeatedly to avoid the culture wars. So what is he trying to do? He's trying to look like a general election candidate where Vivek doesn't have to worry about that right now. He's trying to climb the polls. People forget he was at 0% not that long ago. So he needed to do something to rise, which is why if you look at all his campaign communications and email and the types of things he says on the campaign trail, all of it talks about the quote-unquote wokeness of America. 
which right now is some of the reddest meat you can throw to the Republican Party base. So when he's talking to these types of ideas, rolling back government, getting rid of the FBI, getting rid of the Department of Education. If you remember, Rick Perry back in 2012 was talking about getting rid of the, the Department of Education, a department that he was later the secretary of. So when you start talking about those type of ideas and that type of red meat, that's enough to allow you to gain momentum. Let's go back to 2012. You know, Herman Cain caught lightning in a bottle with 999. Again, this is the season for big ideas without necessarily having to have a big, robust, inviolable plan behind it. That's allowing him to get this bump. Let's see how long he can ride the wave. Well, Lenny McAllister with the Commonwealth Foundation, I always appreciate talking to you. Likewise. God bless. President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden are set to visit Maui today. The visit comes after the deadly fires that claimed more than 100 lives and reduced the historic resort town of Lahaina to ashes. The director of FEMA says she's hopeful Biden's visit will offer a sense of hope and assurance. It comes after the president faced criticism by some over what was said to be a lack of response to the disaster. The fires have raised many questions about accountability and disaster response measures. The Biden administration has promised billions to help rebuild the island, but so far hasn't committed to a federal investigation into the cause of the fire. The devastating fires have been described as the worst the U.S. has seen in over a century. Over 2,100 acres of land were completely obliterated. According to FEMA, close to 80 percent of the area has been searched. The death toll could still increase as the search goes on. And just as the deadly fires on Maui caused widespread destruction, the island is bracing itself for more challenges. Tropical Cyclone Fernanda is expected to bring heavy rain, flooding and mudslides to the island. Workers are putting in added protection around storm drains in Lahaina, the town most severely hit by the wildfires. Boons have been set up by the U.S. Coast Guard across the island to prevent any hazardous materials from impacting the environment. About 700 emergency personnel have been deployed to Maui by the Pentagon to assist FEMA and the state of Hawaii. The emergency personnel are helping with transportation of cargo, personnel, supplies, as well as equipment. Over 1,000 federal responders are currently on the island, including over 300 for search and rescue, along with canine squad members. Nearly 6,000 survivors have registered for federal assistance so far. And just ahead, China's spy agency accused another citizen of spying for the CIA as the regime intensifies its anti-espionage campaign across the nation. And Canada is deploying the military to help tackle wildfires as more 35,000 people are evacuating. Good to have you back. Beijing is ramping up espionage crackdown, targeting so-called spies for the U.S. The regime said today it's investigating a 39-year-old ministry official who allegedly informed the CIA in exchange for money. That's the regime's second high-profile espionage claim this month. Beijing claimed that the Chinese national was recruited by the CIA while studying in Japan. 
The statement came just 10 days after a similar case involving a military-industrial group worker. Earlier this month, the regime called on all members of society to join its fight against espionage and offered rewards and protection for those who provide information. The crackdown came after Beijing expanded the scope of its anti-spying law in July. The Netherlands and Denmark have announced they will supply F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine. The F-16s will be used to strengthen Ukraine's growing counteroffensive against Russia. The Danish Ministry of Foreign Affairs said conditions for the transfer include training Ukrainian personnel, setting up infrastructure and logistics, and receiving the necessary authorization. The move comes after Ukraine recently procured M1 Abrams tanks from the U.S. and Leopard 2 tanks from Germany. Dutch Prime Minister Rutte said the deployment of the fighter jets is being done in close cooperation with the United States. Neither Netherlands nor Denmark specified the number of fighter jets they will send. And now we're getting to some short headlines from around the world. Ukrainian officials said seven people were killed and over 140 wounded after a Russian missile struck a theater in the northern Ukrainian city of Chernihiv. Yesterday, people leaving church and others passing by were among those heard. At the theater, a meeting involving drone manufacturers was taking place. Canada is sending the military to tackle fast-spreading wildfires in the western province of British Columbia as more than 35,000 people are evacuating. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said the military will help with logistical tasks, including evacuations and staging. West Kelowna's fire chief said conditions have improved to battle the flames that threatened the city of 150,000. Russia's first moon mission in 47 years failed. Its Luna 25 spacecraft spun out of control and crashed into the moon after a problem preparing for pre-landing orbit. It has been racing against India. The failure means that Russia may not be the first to sample the frozen water, which scientists believe the south pole of the moon holds. And our hearts go out to the victims of that Ukrainian theater and their families. And coming up, Manhattan's unused office spaces could soon be used as housing for illegal immigrants. And the head of FEMA is sounding an alarm that disaster funds could dry up within weeks. In the midst of wildfire season, more and more insurance companies are leaving California. Hear what one expert says is behind the exodus when we come back. Good to have you back with us. FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell has warned that their disaster funds could dry up within weeks and delay federal response to natural disasters. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, there were 15 weather or climate disaster events this year before August 8th, with each causing more than $1 billion in damage. That total doesn't include the recent wildfires on Maui, which caused an estimated $6 billion in damage to the Lahaina area. And the peak of hurricane season is not until mid-September. President Biden recently asked Congress for $12 billion in funding to replenish FEMA's disaster fund. Criswell said even that money may not be enough and would only cover some of the immediate needs to get through this fiscal year. Yeah, they definitely have to get that resources to the people in Hawaii. Yeah, so incredibly important, right? People are suffering. Yeah. 
And Criswell says they are monitoring the situation day by day as September approaches. She also says while FEMA is responding to the Maui wildfires, it's preparing for the impact of Tropical Storm Hillary on Southern California. Flooding, wildfires and earthquakes are the primary concerns for homeowner insurance providers, but increasing numbers of providers are dropping their coverage in California. Industry representatives lay part of the blame on Proposition 103. The law restricts how much homeowner insurance can cost. The proposition was passed in 1988 by voters in response to high auto insurance costs. Some experts say insurers need to raise premiums to remain profitable, and regulations slowing and preventing that are leading them to reduce their exposure to risk in California. Entities Jack Bradley spoke to an insurance expert to get her take. She suggests there may be another reason as well. Good morning, Evelyn. Increasingly more insurance providers are canceling their coverage on Californians. And this is becoming a daily occurrence. That's according to Chris Abard president of Habard Insurance Solutions. It's almost like dominoes. Every day we get another email that a company has pulled out um, either all together or they put a moratorium on or they um, stopped writing certain lines of business and most notably homeowners and um, auto insurance. Every day. I just got another one today. So um, it's, it's very stressful for, I'm, I'm sure you know, the homeowners. Even in the uh, urban areas, not able to find competitive rates because shoot State Farm and all of the big insurers aren't even writing insurance, period, for anybody in the state. So less competition means higher prices. How is the California's regulations and, and uh, insurance commissioner impacting the uh, insurance market right now? That's, that, they are the reason that we are in the situation that we're in. Whenever we start to get anybody elected, um, they have to worry about whether or not they're going to be reelected for whatever position that might be in the future. Um, maybe not the insurance commissioner, but something else. And they, the last thing they want to do is let insurance companies increase the rates so high on their watch because then it's potentially people won't vote for them. And then we had massive wildfires they keep going i mean we have more that are starting up every day now um and the insurance companies just can't withstand any more um exposure to this because they they have to be fiscally sound they can't i mean it won't do us any good to pay for a premium if the, if the insurance company can't um pony up when we have a claim because they go insolvent so they're very careful to make sure that doesn't happen and that means they have to stop writing in California because they can't take on any more of the risk um, than that, what they already have. And they even have, they're starting to non-renew or cancel people. Why are the premiums so high? Why are the insurance rates so high now compared to in the past? Well, so in, in order for the insurance companies to be able to pay the claims, they have to have enough money. So right now they're running at about 120 to 130% of what they take in. So as you can see, I don't know about you, I can't go very long spending 20% more than what I make, um, not very long at all. So insurance companies have been doing that for several years now, and they, um, they're to the point where they can't. The economy is going to stop. You're not going to be able to sell very many new homes if you can't buy insurance on them. And we're almost getting to that point where we don't have any standard of preferred carriers at all. And the same thing goes for auto insurance. 
Um, auto insurance is in the same crisis. You know, we've had more, I'm, I'm sure that you're driving on the freeway and you see how crazy people are driving and how many accidents. We're at a, an all-time high for accidents all across the United States. So the insurance companies don't have any relief anywhere from all of these massive automobile claims. So they've stopped writing auto insurance too. Are there enough insurance coverage uh, companies out here in California right now? No, 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 we don't have. In, in my agency, we represent about 25 different insurance companies and we're down to two or three. And every day, like I said, they'll, they'll take out one line of business and then the next day we get another email and say, sorry, we're gonna stop writing this one too. And two or three insurance companies, is, we only have two insurance companies that will write auto policies right now. They just can't take, they can't withstand the claims that are gonna happen um, if they take more business on. We've had a lot of claims that have had to sell because they, they couldn't afford 10 or $12,000 a year in insurance anymore. They're on fixed incomes, they're retired. They had to make the decision, the hard decision. They had to move from a house they thought they were gonna live in for the rest of their lives. Hubbard says unless regulations in California change, insurers will continue to limit their coverage. Evelyn. Thank you, Jack. A request for comment from the, uh, from the California Department of Insurance was not returned. But the department said earlier this year it's aware of the problem and is seeking ways to address this issue. Over to New York, Mayor Eric Adams, who has said he wants to turn the city's unused office space into migrant housing. Adams says the proposal could generate around 20,000 new homes. He added that building owners would need help with cutting through the red tape involving the venture. Plans include rezoning 42 blocks of Midtown, south in the Manhattan district, and as part of the $24 billion pledge the city has made to create affordable housing. The move comes after another proposal by Adams last week to house migrants in shuttered prisons. Adams sent a letter on August 9th to State Governor Kathy Hochul suggesting the now defunct Metropolitan Correctional Center could serve as shelter to cope with the city's illegal immigrant crisis. The MCC was closed in 2021 following reports of unsafe conditions and multiple security breaches. The state has committed over $1 billion in resources for the city to deal with the increasing number of illegal migrants. Well, yeah, and it's, it's, I mean, that's a novel idea using defunct prisons to house migrants. Well, yeah, and hopefully they can clean them out properly and in time. But I mean, it's a good thing when all those migrants are outside on the streets. They're also very vulnerable for human traffickers, right? Right. And, well, and the question is, what do you do when all the defunct prisons and all the schools and everything are all used up housing these migrants? That's when, you know, obviously the federal level has to take a, a role in that. Well, let's see how this will play out. Now, coming up, electric cars are breaking sales records recently. We have more on the latest business news from Entity Business host Don Ma. And we ask, when will your child be ready for a smartphone? Teens and tweens stand to gain a lot from them, but there are many risks. We bring you insight on how to approach this delicate topic. And the story of a man who doesn't let the condition he was born with hold him back. He says he's now sharing the message of hope and living life to the fullest. It's good to have you back with us. Demand for electric cars is booming, and we want to learn a little bit more about this, so we turn to NTD Business host Don Ma. Don, good morning. Thanks for coming on. Good morning, Kevin. How are you? 
Doing good. It seems like electric cars are breaking sales records recently. So Don, what are the numbers and why is this happening? Kevin, it appears that more shoppers are choosing electric vehicles so far this year than ever. Now, of course, this is according to vehicle sales data from Cox Automotive. So here's a brief overview. EV sales have been growing for the past couple of years, but that trend seems like accelerated, accelerated this year. U.S. consumers bought nearly 300,000 new electric vehicles in the second quarter, which, by the way, is a new record. It's 48% higher than last year. And just to put this into perspective, this amount sold is more than the total number sold in all of 2019. Now, according to Cox Automotive, it predicts sales of fully electric vehicles in the U.S. will break the one million vehicle barrier in 2023. So that's that's the first time ever a milestone for sure. Um, some experts are also saying EV sales are being propelled by uh, by some factors, including price cuts, a wide variety of, av of available vehicles and more government and uh, manufacturing investments. So that's just a brief overview. Now it seems like the consumers have spoken. Just hopefully the electric grid can keep up. And are electric cars going to replace gasoline cars in the near term? Well, Kevin, the short answer is no. Um, they're not going to replace gas cars anytime soon. The U.S. Energy Information Administration estimates that having an EV majority market, that's going to take decades, Kevin. Uh, and the reason, according to the director of, in of Industry Insights at Cox Automotive, is that price is too high and that's the biggest uh, biggest barrier for consumers then then the second biggest concern is a lack of access to charging stations now the the number of charging stations still lagging behind to what is needed to support a wider scale adoption of electric vehicles um, at the end of q1 2023 this year there were roughly 134,000 charging stations and 3.3 million evs on the road across the country. So think about that ratio here. And, and there's another thing, Kevin. Drivers have to consider that it takes a very long time to charge an EV. So if you're out, if you're out of battery, you're going to be stuck at a charging station for hours and hours, Kevin. Yeah, and if only those EV makers can just bring down the price and the size of those batteries. I mean, I've heard there's hard to even get anything in the trunk. So is there anything else you have for us, Don? Yeah, sure. Um, just a quick update on uh, bankrupt trucking company Yellow. According to the Wall Street Journal, the company has got a new bid of $1.5 billion from Old Dominion Freight Line. The money is to buy Yellow's network of nearly 170 trucking terminals. The offer is uh, $200 million higher than an earlier bid by Revel Estes Express Lines. The deal could provide Yellow with enough money to roughly pay off its outstanding loans. Um, but now turning to social media, uh, a new web version for Meta's app Threads is in the works. Um, this move comes amid fierce competition between Meta and Elon Musk's rival company X, formerly known as Twitter. Uh, the new feature would add to the wish list of users after the pop app's popularity declined since it launched in early July. And just Kevin, one more update. Mortgage rates may soon climb even higher to potentially 8%. Economists say it all depends on what, what the Fed will do about inflation in the coming months. If officials choose to raise rates once again, it could be the 12th hike in 18 months. And what that means is higher costs for home buyers. 
30-year mortgage fixed rate has already settled above 7%. It's the highest level in more than 20 years. Um, but yeah, on that note, that's all from me, Kevin. Well, we're going to see if Threads unravels or if it picks up some traction. So thank you, Don, host of NTD Business. Good talking to you. Thank you. Some great insights. And now turning to parents of teens or preteens, you guys listen up because Kevin here has been searching for answers on the best way to approach the topic of smartphones for your kids. Yeah, that's right. A little bit of research, a talk with an expert in psychology, and a trip to the streets of New York. Hopefully it can help paint a broad picture of this sensitive topic and help you make an informed decision that's best for your family. Take a look. These devices, smartphones, can be invaluable for tweens, those 8 to 12, and teens when it comes to navigating the subway, staying safe when they start driving and there's a mishap, and staying in the loop socially. They can give young kids the chance to develop digital literacy in the information and technology age and serve as a source of entertainment and even help them to become more creative. But there are significant risks for young people in cities and elsewhere surrounding the use of these smartphones. We hear more on this from an expert. We're joined now by Mara Francis, Clinical Psychology Postdoctoral Fellow at the Manhattan Psychology Group. It's great to speak with you, Mara. Yeah, it's great to speak with you too, Kevin. Thank you for having me. Parents face a number of challenges, as you know, when deciding whether or not to give their smartphones to their children. The question is, do the risks outweigh the benefits? I mean, the risks are cyberbullying, inappropriate texting, possibly with a predator, and also it becoming a source of too many distractions. So do the connectedness and the independence outweigh this? You know, I think it's a little bit of a balance. Um, so, you know, it's kind of like a black and white perspective. So having too little of something could be a bad thing, thing, but also having too much of something can also be a bad thing. So I think it's about finding that middle ground about what works for the child, the teen, um, and the parent. That is a really balanced perspective that you bring in. And, you know, some of the scenarios of these smartphones are that there's a tendency for these kids to do what's called fubbing or ignoring others when they're using their phones, and that harms their face-to-face -face interactions, and as well as the threat of pornography's temptation and even becoming addicted to these devices. So how can parents make informed decisions considering this? Yeah, for sure. I think the most important thing is to set expectations. Um, so sometimes when parents introduce technology devices to their kids, it's kind of like, all right, here it is, like, do whatever you want. Um, and then as things kind of happen a long time, that's when they start to address things. And so sometimes that can be really hard to kind of go backwards and say, like, this is something that we need to have a discussion about. I think having those discussions first would be really beneficial and then kind of setting the stage up for, you know, what is the expectations around communicating with uh, your friends versus being on certain apps and then also having privacy, privacy settings to monitor their uh, activity and the content that they're consuming. That's excellent insight, Mara. And now we're going to hear some perspectives from the public in the Big Apple. I mean, I personally think it's 16 or when they're driving is the best time my kids have one because they worked for one, but they can only do it if they're not with me on an activity. Um, I don't think before middle school, I don't think that's reasonable for a child, a child to have it. And I don't think they should have unlimited access to the internet because they're not mature enough to handle that. And Lisa, how do you regulate your child's cell phone and smartphone use? That's funny. <laughs> I've learned to lock everything in my closet, quite honestly, with a key. Um, and they get it when they earn it by doing chores, doing schoolwork, being outside, um, or if they need it, I will get it with my key. <laughs> and do you think that the state should be involved in regulating this? No, I mean, that's, that would make it a different kind of country. I don't think that's, that should happen. Um, I think parents really have their own choice what they do with their, ch their children. Um, I do wish there was less 
you know, peer pressure, that's a really difficult thing. And then in the schools, I don't think they should bring it into the school, but it's too complicated to have the state involved, I think. It could be a brain drain. It could be a time drain. Um, you know, kids can get pretty lazy and live in a virtual world instead of uh, getting out and interacting. And, you know, I mean, no better place to, to really live in the real world than New York City. That's why we, we brought them out here from California to see it. I got my first smartphone when I was probably 15, 14, maybe. I think it's been good because being able to like keep in touch with family and friends has been really important, especially because I'm from Canada. So like being in New York and taking trips down here has been really nice to be able to kind of take pictures and um, yeah, let people know what's going on in my life. So yeah, that's been pretty big for me. How else has it helped you? Um, I don't know, kind of keeping up with the news, because I'm a big sports guy, so loves like following hockey or uh, football and stuff, seeing my favorite team, seeing how they're doing this week in sports, and kind of, yeah, for that, for sure. Thank you so much for your time, Jameson. Thank you so much, yeah. And while we consider all of the benefits to smartphones, there is an NIH publication that shows evidence of a connection between increased use in smartphones among youth and more thoughts of mental distress, suicide, and self-harm. And those are particularly the case in young girls. Oh, I think you covered a lot of ground there, especially hearing from all kinds of all sides of the story, right? We had teens, we had parents, we had an expert. I think in the end, really, and we also heard a lot of the upside. So I think in the end, really, what do you think? It, it comes down to a personal balance, right? Yes, it, it is a parent's decision. They have to weigh this very carefully. And you know, people in cities, like city-dwelling teens, they can face increased peer pressure, like we heard the mother talking about, and also being bombarded with ads to get the latest gadget. And you know, Mara told me that these can present a greater risk to those teens mm -hmm. living right. in these metropolitan areas. So, something to consider as well. Very good report here. And heading into the break, we have the story of a man who doesn't let the condition he was born with limit him. He says he's now sharing the message of hope and living life to the fullest. Good to have you back. We have the story of Jose Flores, who was diagnosed with spinal muscular atrophy as a child. Despite of what the doctors were telling him, he defied the odds. He shared an inspiring story about his struggle and how he refused to let it become his standard. Here's that interview. And I thought that this uh, condition that I was born with was, uh, you know, it was stopping me from doing all those things. But that was just my own limiting belief system, right? It was only, it was my own uh, thoughts and, and the story that I was telling myself was a polluted story. And so this is why I'm so passionate about sharing this message of hope, sharing this message of living life to the fullest and not letting your struggle become your standard. And it's because I've been through it, I've lived it, I've gone through it and I've been able to overcome it. And that's not to say that today I still have you know, my days or my moments where I'm overwhelmed, I'm frustrated, I'm not functioning at 100%, um, and that's okay. I want to let everybody know that's okay. But what's not okay is to let those moments turn into days and weeks and months and years. Mm. That's not okay. And so that's why I'm so passionate about s spreading this message of hope and, and just letting the people know that no matter what their struggles are in life, we can still climb to the top. Right, and I, I am thankful for that, that you're doing this, because I think everybody 
needs that reminder also from time to time. And I think it's very, really fascinating, the mindset that you were able to keep, first of all. But also when you mentioned that you had all these thoughts of not being able to this or not being able to that, and even until today you have these kind of moments, can you talk to me more about how you deal with these moments that you have? How do you let them not get the best of you? Yeah, you know, negative thoughts are constantly trying to grab our attention or make us continue to be in a certain state of being. Uh, and, you know, the reality is, is that we have control over that. I like to say that I have SMA, which is spinal muscular atrophy. I have SMA, but SMA doesn't have me, which it used to have me for a long time. And so I kind of like developed the mindset that's, that it was just a small pivot and, and, and a small change of a, a paradigm shift in my thinking that said, okay, well, we know what you can't do. Well, what can you do? And then I just started focusing on that more instead of focusing on the negative. And so I think that if anyone that's watching this is, is going through a struggle right now, is having a moment of, 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 of feeling down and out and um, not functioning at your maximum capacity, I want you to know that as long as you're able to increase your awareness, your level of awareness on why you're feeling the way you're feeling, right? Just the other day, I had a little moment. I was traveling for a speaking engagement in Utah, and we went to this one location, and that location uh, wasn't accessible. It wasn't wheelchair accessible. And so I kind of got upset. I was getting overwhelmed and frustrated, and I started kind of going down this little path of like, man, why do, you know, we're in America. Why isn't this accessible? <laughs> and I'm thinking about all these things, and all these negative thoughts started rushing my mind. And I was like, well, you know what? What am I complaining about? I'm in Utah. Look at all these mountains. Look at how beautiful this is. Just the fact that I'm able to travel to this destination and witness and experience this moment, it was so amazing. And then once I started just really quickly changing my thought process, my whole attitude changed with it completely right away, immediately, really. And so if you're able to do that and understand that when you're having those moments throughout your life, just start to put yourself in an attitude of gratitude. That's awesome. And I think one lesson that I just took away from your story is that sometimes, and I'm sure I'm, a lot of people are guilty of it, me too, that sometimes we're so consumed and complaining about something or pointing fingers that maybe we forget about the power we have in ourselves to overcome that adversity. So thanks for sharing that story. And also, I want to talk to you about your book, Don't Let Struggle Become Your Standard. Tell me a little more what your um, what the topic is there, and uh, what is there any other life lesson in there that you would want people to take away from? I, I was even just telling my mom this the other day because she was over my house helping me. I was like, well, there's only two options. I can either be positive and look at the bright side of things, or I can be depressed and bitter. Those are the only two options when, when life happens to us. And so I chose I chose to be positive and look at the bright side of things. And because and when you think about it, it takes more work to be depressed and bitter and miserable than it does to be happy. It's, 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 it's almost like, you know, when you're thinking about those type of things, when you, when you go through a struggle, right, a lot of times people will just settle for what happens to them and they'll just park there their whole lives. And they have that whole woe is me mentality and that whole woe is me attitude. And they'll just settle for what life has given them. But when you can understand that you don't have to settle right there, right? You don't have to park on that speed bump. You can keep moving forward and living the life of your dreams. That changes the way you start to think about life. So I wanted to write this book to let the world know that we're all going to go through a struggle. You're either, you've either gone through a struggle, you're either in a struggle, or you're headed towards a struggle. Because struggle in life is inevitable. But being defeated by them is optional. Mm. 
profound words, and I'm taking one quote especially with me. It takes more to be more work to be depressed and bitter. I think that's so true. Thank you so much, Jose Flores, for sharing all this. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's my pleasure. You know, I think it's really great that he just does not let his illness define him. Yeah, and it's it's so hard. I, I think, you know, changing an attitude in, in, in an adverse situation, it sounds like a small thing, and it sounds like, you know, oh, you just flip a switch and then you change your attitude, but it's so hard, but it's so rewarding. Yes, yeah, so looking at the positives can really change this yeah. situation. Mm -hmm.